If you're skeptical, you're fine. The truth is that Exodus 25 through 40 is a unit and will be in this portion of Scripture for many weeks. So don't sweat that. And moms and dads, I really want, as we'll be dealing with things and materials over these coming weeks as we think about the tabernacle, we want to... We want this to be more than words. We'll need pictures. And we're going to have some pictures up here over the weeks as we look at the tabernacle, its furnishings in the courtyard. Um, I really want to engage the children of our church. And so, kids, you're going to hear the word cubit, too. Cubit is a, is a term of measurement like a centimeter or an inch or a foot or a yard or a mile. And so maybe... Parents, let your children, show them a cubit by them seeing the point of your elbow, the tip of your finger, which is about a half a yard, about 18 inches in a point of measurement. We want to engage our children. I don't, we don't want children simply enduring worship, like when is it going to be 12? And so cubits and pictures are going to be important um, as we work through these last 16 chapters of Exodus. Have you ever felt out of place? Or better, have you ever felt like you had no place? No place of your own. And it's a little different. I'm not simply speaking of someone that you think is homeless. And maybe you're driving into Food Lion and they're there. But it's just, it's this idea of there's no place I can call my own, I can hang my hat where it has my title. In our backyard, if you come to our house, you'll see a very basic tree house that's about 20 years of age. It is simply without any notoriety. There's nothing unique about it. Except that many years ago, our youngest begged me. He said, Dad, can you build me a treehouse? And to this day, you never need to beg or invite a child to go up into it. They just do it. Or instinctively, they ask you that most expected of questions. Can I go up in your playhouse? It's universal. I think if you had 100 children to our backyard 99 or 100 would just see it and immediately go up into it or ask permission to do the same. And of course, the answer is always yes. It's a place, if only for a few minutes, a mini dwelling, a tiny bit of tabernacle in miniature form for little ones to call their own. But long before Philip, our youngest, begged us for that treehouse, God was directing Moses on the mountain to organize a free will offering with his people. And the goal was to build God a place where he could dwell in the midst of his people. That's why we use Zephaniah 3.17 for our call to worship about God in the midst of us. And the operative word here is presence. And this idea of presence is incredibly powerful. 
Solomon prayed this at the temple dedication in 1 Kings 8.27. He said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven contain you. How much less this house that I have built. But still the whole focus of the last 16 chapters of Exodus is this tabernacle or dwelling place in the wilderness. If you'll go back two weeks ago on Sunday morning, on the 14th we, or 16th, I preached it, on those first nine verses of our chapter, a matter of the heart. And if you think, you can ask this question, why does God initiate a free will offering for the sons and daughters of Israel in the opening verses of this chapter? Why does he give this message to Moses? You look there in verse 2 of chapter 25. Speak, he says, or command to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary. Not just any old building project. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. As we take this section, Exodus 25 through 40, it's important to understand this is about the tabernacle in the wilderness. And from Exodus 24, verse 18, until chapter 31, verse 18, a full seven chapters, Yahweh will give Moses specific instructions over a 40-day period. He will give him a template, a pattern for for the construction of this unique and transportable sanctuary, literally a tabernacle or a dwelling place. And you'll see that verse, you'll see that word pattern. Look there in in verse 9. He says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then later in verse 40, he says, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain, all right? And you'll even see this this language of, again, the idea here in chapter 27 and verse 8 concerning the bronze altar. And as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And the point is, Moses with the sons of Israel, is to implement and obey and do exactly as God has prescribed. This was not a time for innovation, but for implementation of what God has said. There was no need to get creative, if you will. They would take creative talent to do this, but there's a specific pattern that's given to Moses in this the people of Israel. I want to point out too though, look at 27 and verse 21 for a moment. There's another phrase, if you'll see there, 
The tent of meeting, you'll see that expression. It's another phrase for the tabernacle. So you have tabernacle or dwelling place, or in this case, tent of meeting, a very common expression. You'll especially find that in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Numbers. And then even many years later, in Stephen's martyr sermon, he uses another term, tent of witness. Look at this, Acts 7 and verse 44. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. There it is. Pattern, pattern, pattern. Exodus 25, verse 9. Exodus 25, verse 40. Exodus 27, verse 8. As it's been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And then the historical commentary by Stephen. Our father said the tent of witness in the wilderness. And just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Now, as John read, we saw the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 verse 5 really take an apologetic tone. He says, I can't get into the weeds about this right now. And he's apologetic as he speaks of the tabernacle and its furnishings. He says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. But for us this morning, we'll take a little bit of time and even more so in coming weeks to look at that detail. The materials requested in the free will offering there in chapter 25 and verses 1 through 9 and the the instructions given to Moses, that's the special subject of Exodus 25 through 31. And they encompass three particular things. And so as we're learning together and thinking about this, we won't want to forget the end point. And that is just as the Lord Jesus was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel, and he's telling them that everything in the law and the prophets and the writings point to him We never want, as we think of materials, for example, the furnishings, and you have these elements of what's the material, what are the dimensions, and how is it put together, not to count the symbolic thrust in meaning, what is it pointing us to, we never want to forget, we don't want to get so lost that we don't see Christ as the end of the law in all things. But moms and dads, with your children, let's get a picture here. And I think this is helpful, even a room this size, as we think of the tabernacle. At some point, we'll start to get pictures up eventually between this week and the coming. But I want you to keep, when you take these remaining chapters, think of the tabernacle proper as the smaller unit. So you have the the tabernacle You have the courtyard of the tabernacle, and then you have all the furniture. Maybe you'll use the word furnishings. But when you take our three chapters this morning, Exodus 25 through 27, you can look at it this way, all right? 
you can see first that that you'll see the furnishings briefly, not all of them, but kind of the introduction, and then the the tabernacle proper, and then finally you'll see everything that's outside the tabernacle. So these three chapters, the tabernacle, its furnishings, and then the consecration and the adornment of the priests. All right? The tabernacle, and when I say tabernacle, we'll mean not just the tabernacle proper, but the courtyard, the big broad space outside of what we call the tabernacle. By the way, what are the other, what's the other phrase for tabernacle? Tent of meeting. Tent of meeting. You can also say dwelling place. No problem. Tabernacle, tent of meeting. Very good. Now, but all the instructions that Moses receives over these 40 days deal with the tabernacle, the furnishings, and then the consecration and the adornment of the priests who will fulfill the priestly function in the tabernacle. But chapters 25 through 27 really make no mention of Aaron in the priestly function until you get to verse 21. And once you get to chapter 27 and verse 21, you'll begin to read of Aaron and his sons very frequently, especially beginning in chapter 28. But it's going to be difficult for you to appreciate this if you're only using your phone. So if you can grab at some point the Bible in front of you or bring a Bible, I think it'll be very helpful broadly because we're not just focused on a verse. But this morning, our focus is on the tabernacle and its furnishings. The tabernacle and its furnishings, okay? And I want you to appreciate that this is an overarching and orienting message. I think it's helpful if you have a Bible that you understand that chap- when you take 25 through 31, there'll be a perfect parallel almost beginning in chapter 35 and verse 4. So, In chapter 25 through 31, God is speaking to Moses on the mountain. And everything that he speaks and prescribes then plays out beginning in chapter 35 in verse 4, where the actual contributions are received. And so we'll get, again, we'll get two chances to go through the tabernacle, its furnishings, and everything outside the tabernacle. For some of you, if this feels new, that's okay. Remember that it's all to point to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so first, let's turn then to chapter 25, and I want us to see that beginning in verse 10, there are three particular pieces of furniture in the remaining portion of this chapter. There's the ark of the covenant, also called the Ark of the what? The Ark of the Testimony. The Ark of the Covenant, the table or the table for bread, and the golden lampstand. The only reason the the ESV uses this golden lampstand is because the lamp or lampstand is made entirely of what? Gold, pure 
gold, all right? But it's fine, instead of table for bread, to say table. Instead of golden lampstand, it's fine simply to say lampstand. And then in chapter 26, we're going to look at the tabernacle and think of how that deals with the tabernacle proper. I'm going to give you a sense of perspective here. The courtyard, the courtyard, the movable and transportable courtyard was approximately 100 cubits or 150 feet by 50 cubits or 75 feet. It's almost exactly a quarter of an acre. If you live on a quarter acre lot, that's the size of everything outside of the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle or the tent of meeting or what we call the dwelling place was more something like 30 cubits by 12 cubits, more like 45 feet by 18 feet. So, and then finally, when we come to chapter 27, we're going to see this particular piece of furniture, the bronze altar. And you'll notice it there, the bronze altars, this first thing. If you'll notice on the bottom of the picture, those four panels that are so beautiful, there's the bronze altar. Go back to the previous one, if you will. This is the entrance to the east with those four panels so that the whole of the courtyard is oriented long side east to west. The entrance into the courtyard and the entrance into the tabernacle or tent of meeting is to the east. And so let's look briefly at these furnishings. And I want you to understand over the weeks we'll spend more time uh, appropriately at, at each of the furnishings and, and the tabernacle itself, the arrangement, to see what it might show us of Christ. So first, can we be surprised that the very first matter of specific instruction deals with the Ark of the Covenant? From Hebrews 9, we know that this is the vessel for the golden urn that's holding the manna. It's holding Aaron's staff that budded. It's holding the tablets of the covenant. And it's covered by the mercy seat or what's translated propitiation. Now, we don't need to find meaning in every detail. So when we think of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, and it's covered by this mercy seat, and we're given the materials itself, we're given the dimensions, or we're given the arrangement. Each of those materials, dimensions, and arrangement don't always have something where we need to try to squeeze out particular meaning from it, okay? But here is this Ark of the Covenant. Now, kids, let me ask you a question. Within the tabernacle, there's a veil that divides the tabernacle, if you will, in half or into two sections. Was the Ark of the Covenant in the first section or in the second section? Any kid? The first or the second? The second. Very good. You had a 50% chance of getting that right. Okay, you got it. All right. And this is a central piece of what's happening in terms of a picture of Christ's 
priestly work in intercession intercession on behalf of the people of God. So there's the ark. You know, we're told, right? We're told its length, its width, its height, its acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold. Imagine like complete overleaf of gold. And it's got these, right, these holes, these rings for poles to might be carried. Many months from now, we're going to see a case when, right, when you've got to hold this thing very carefully so that it doesn't tip over, must be regarded reverently. And the poles, we read in verse 15, are to remain in this ark. Now, when you think of the word ark, kids, what do you think of? If you hear ark, whose name do you remember? Noah. Noah. That's right. Yeah. So you have Noah and the ark, and now you have the ark of the covenant. As we read about cherubim, where do we read of cherubim for the first time in the Bible? Does anyone remember? Yeah. In the where? The garden of of Eden on the east gate, if you will, set there when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're there to guard, uh, the, if you will, the, the temple of the garden from intrusion or return by Adam and Eve. Okay, so the ark with Noah and now the ark of covenant here, the cherubim on the east gate of the garden of Eden there in Genesis. And now cherubim, and you're going to see this theme of cherubim begin. But first is this word ark. But what's above the ark? What's on top of the ark? What is its literal cover? The mercy seat. And the idea of covering there is where we get the Hebrew word kafar, to cover. Like the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. But very interesting to see how this word is picked up by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. For the word translated mercy seat in Hebrews 9 is translated by Paul as propitiation in Romans 3. He says there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, literally, whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. This is ground zero of the point of atonement, the place where this all comes together within the tabernacle, not the first section, but beyond the veil into the second session section, with there's the Ark of the Covenant covered by this mercy seat with two cherubim. Okay, now, and you'll notice, let's consider that briefly. What's unique about this? There's the mercy seat, pure gold, covering the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the the Testimony. And the two cherubim, and we're going to develop this theme and understand. And notice the significance. Two cherubim, two cherub, together, plural cherubim. They're there. 
And we've seen this already in the book of Genesis, but in a guarding type of way. But here, this is where God, we're told, verse 22, God says, there, right there, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, the Lord says to Moses there on the mountain, it's there that I will speak with you about all that I will give in commandment for the people of God. We're going to spend time on this, not trying to steal from Pastor Jamie's series in the, the book of Hebrews, but there's a lot of correlation between these. But we see next the table for bread. Look in chapter 25 and verses 23 through 30. You'll, might, you'll know and we'll see this later. We, we're not always trying to get ahead of ourselves. But here's this table. And it's the table and the lampstand that are in the first section of the tabernacle. Opposite each other. Where it's the Ark of the Covenant covered with the mercy seat that are beyond the veil. So here's the table for bed. When you think of bread in Israel, what do you think of? Does your first think, does your first thought go to Christ who says, I am the bread of life? Or what do you think of when you see this bread here? This bread. Robert Murray McShane says in taking the bread and the lampstand together, he says as there was the 12 loaves, I think, or two sets of 12 loaves of bread on this table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And even the lamp within that first section with its limited light, right? Only the priest going into the, 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 the holy place and then the high priest into the most holy place. But as the priests minister daily going into that first section, Robert Murray McShane says that between the 12 loaves of bread, I think times two on the table, and the lampstand with its limited light, maybe honestly looking something like these sconces on the wall. That's almost uh, reminiscent of it. It's to show the gospel in seed form. That though it began with a childless couple at the end of Genesis 11 with Abram and his wife who had no children. That the plan was that through the seed of the woman, he would give his blood so that he would purchase for God men from every tribe and every language and every nation and every people. And the light... And the light that appeared there, you know, that, that uh, fire by night, the cloud by day, the fire by night that was specifically for Israel. One of the, the storylines in all of the Bible is that this gospel, it was not just for Israel, but for the whole nations, for, for all the nations. And so the bread, though initially showing 12 tribes of the, the people of Israel, it points to one who says, I am the bread of life, and you'll never go hungry if you have me. That's why he says, feast on me. And he says, I am the light of the world, so that this lamp, the lamp in that first section of the tabernacle, would not be limited to him. 
or to, to Israel alone, but would be broader than that. Let's look nextly, just briefly, at the tabernacle proper there in chapter 26. Edmund Clowney says that when God shifted his assembly from Sinai to Zion, he taught us another principle. God came not only to meet with Israel, but to dwell with them. And it reminds us of a form of the, of the new covenant. You may say it this way. God says, I am your God. I will be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell with you. It's why the writer of the book of Hebrews in encouraging God's people not to be anxious about money and their daily bread. He says, don't be worried about that. And he quotes from Joshua 1, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A key promise of the new covenant. But now, as we think about this tabernacle, take verse 26, chapter 26. You may read this many times, and you're trying to get a sense of this. But I want you to notice from the picture, you see these long curtains here that go the full width of the tabernacle. What I want you to understand is that this tabernacle, in effect, had a roof of four different coverings. It's beautiful when you think about it. Notice there in verse 1, the ten curtains, and the ten curtains have this fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and then with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And so that's on the bottom, on the inside. That's what's visual, like looking up at our ceiling and seeing the paint color on the trim and on the wall. But above that then was a covering or curtains of goat's hair. You see that in verse 7, all right? A little bit longer, 30 cubits, than the 28-cubit long curtains made of linen, three different color yarns in the cherubim. And you're, you'll notice that just as there were these two cherubim on either side of the mercy seat, when the priests went into the holy place, the first section of the tabernacle, and the high priest annually would go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, there was this theme of cherubim. Some of you have themes in your home. Who have themes of like shells from the beach? You, you, everyone does. I don't know anyone that doesn't have some theme in some room. What's the theme in the tabernacle? They're on, the, they're on those entrance panels. It's cherubim. And then when you come in, when the priest would come in, on, woven in the fabric on these 30 cubic long pieces would be cherubim. And then the great high priest, when we, he'd go into that holy of holies, there's the cherubim, these two heavenly creatures then our first introduction to them is to see them guarding the east side of this temple of the Garden of Eden. And now, there they are to witness God coming to meet with his people to dwell in the midst of them. So there's four coverings. The ten curtains of the three yarns. 
and the fine twined linen. There's a second covering of goat's hair. But then look there in verses 14. Providing the waterproof roofing. In verse 14, you see it says, And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Kids, can you imagine how much work this was to put all this together? All these strips, four layers deep, a beautiful fabric when the priests would look up in the first section, the holy place. A beautiful fabric in that second section, the holy of holies, when the high priest would look up once a year and see that same fabric with the twisted linen and fabric of three different yarns and a cherubim woven, a pattern of a cherubim. And then the cherubim at the mercy seat. This is the tabernacle. And we're told so much. Again, materials, dimensions, and the way it's put together. And you can see all those materials that God was requesting from the children of Israel there in chapter 25 in verses 3 and 7, everything that he requests, he employs in the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. It's all here. Gold and silver and bronze. Fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Acacia wood. We'll even see oil oil at the end of chapter 27 and there'll be more in weeks to come and I think there is an application here an application just briefly that what God asks of us we may trust that he will use some of us if we're honest feel like Life is just one endless laboring in obscurity and in anonymity. And we're wondering if we're honest with Solomon out of the book of Ecclesiastes, does any of it ever matter? It does. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything that God asks of the people of Israel, he incorporates now. Notice particularly in verse 31, here is this veil between the first and second section of the tabernacle, between the holy place in the most holy place. I like the language of the holy of holies because it has both forms of the word back to back. It's like if you said the blackest black or the bluest blue, this is the holiest holy. And there's this veil that separates it. And again, it's the same, these materials that are in the roof. And there it is with the cherubim worked in. And it's, you'll see this, right? It's there hung. 
and on the other side of this veil from the first section to the section to the most holy or holy of holiest. He says, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony. Notice how he reverses the order. Originally, he starts with the ark of the covenant covered with the mercy seat. But now he speaks of, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant. Because it's there, even as Wesley's going to lead us in a few moments in hymn number 507, or version of that. As we think about this mercy seat, approach my soul, or approach my soul, the mercy seat, it's there, it's the central point of God's atoning activity. Everything at the cross, in effect, was pictured there. And when you read in Matthew 27, that when the Lord Jesus breathes his last, and he says, it is finished, and it says the veil or the, the veil was torn from top to bottom. It's this veil. It's not like at a theater. It's at a place where the gospel is most greatly and most beautifully dramatized. The veil described here beginning in verse 31 of chapter 26 in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. Well, just briefly, I want us to look outside the tabernacle. You'll notice that before God gives Moses the dimensions, the specifications, the pattern on the court of the tabernacle, he speaks to this bronze altar. So when you come through the east side, you enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle the first thing you see that's unmistakable is this seven and a half foot square and four and a half foot tall tabernacle. And just like, just like the mercy seat covering that ark had those permanent poles to rings, same here with the bronze altar. And when you read of the altar throughout the book of Leviticus, this is typically the reference that's there. It's the largest thing going in the courtyard beside the tabernacle proper itself. Now, I want you to notice real quickly about the tabernacle for a moment. You'll see its dimensions. Again, same material, fine twine linen, verse 9. Pillars and bases of bronze, hooks and fillets of silver. A hundred cubits long on one side, that is east to west, or 150 feet. 50 cubits or 75 feet north to south with its entrance on the east. And there right in front is this altar. You'll notice all the materials and there's much of the same language, right? Hangings and curtains and pillars and bases and fillets and hooks. Notice in verse 16, the gate, 20 cubits long. So 30 feet, almost 40% of the width is this wide open gate there, Right? Look at this. As you 
finish, I just want to point this out to you briefly. It goes on to tell us that it's made of fine twisted linen, but material there as you come into the courtyard, you have these hangings, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen. inviting all the children of Israel to come and bring their offerings. What have we seen this morning? As we think of the tabernacling God, we've understood that there's the tabernacle proper. There's everything outside of that, what we call the courtyard of the tabernacle. There's the furnishings from the altar, this imposing altar that greets you as you come into the courtyard. The hangings on the tabernacle with three colors of yarn and twisted linen and a pattern of cherubim. In that first section of the inner sanctum where there's the table with bread and there's the golden lampstand. And there's bread and light. And it's into this that we read or is a daily access point for the priests. But then there's that screen, chapter 26 and verse 31, that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy place from the holy of holies, where only the high priest went one, for one time per year. Kids, what should this make us think when we think of this inner room and this beautiful thing called the Ark of the Covenant that has inside it a golden urn with manna? It has Aaron's rod that budded. It has these two tablets. What does that make us think of? Who has gone there for us? the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you this. We started off thinking about what's it feel like to not have a place. Do you know that from eternity, God designed a plan of redemption that he said, I will dwell in the midst of you. I will dwell in in the midst of you. It's opposite the person that doesn't want to be near you, that doesn't want to speak with you, that doesn't want to be associated with you. This is the living God from eternity who says, I've put my love upon you. And a son that says, I will suffer the rending of my flesh, the tearing of this veil, even as symbolized, the tearing of his flesh on Calvary symbolized at that very moment in Jerusalem, in the temple, that veil that was specified there in Exodus 26, tore. He was torn for you, that you might dwell with him. Have you lost your awe? 
Are you so tired of hearing this that you just, just like water off a duck's back? Does it no longer mix? Brothers and sisters, he was our high priest. He went in once for all time. And this is what John Stott says is so unique. He calls it the hapax in the malon. He says, he did once for all and gave himself for us, that we, the hapax, once for all time, once for all his people, that we all the more, day after day, might give unto him those sacrifices in response to him who gave himself for us. It's why Paul says in Romans 14 that Jesus died and rose again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Let me read this to you briefly. He says in Romans 14 verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Are you unmoved? Are you ambivalent to this greatest of all movements of the Son of God as our great high priest who entered not just the holy place, but into the most holy place and allowed his flesh to be rendered, to be rent, to be torn for us, the ultimate act for another, for his people and there we find him and there you will this day and so now as we sing approach my soul think of him who went before you and it was there at the mercy seat that he didn't simply bring an offering. He brought, as John Murray says, an offering of him very, of his very self. He gave himself for you, to him. Let's look.